What's up, you guys? In my new episode of the Heart Speaks podcast, I speak with my friend Sun Katayama, an aficionado in photography, massage therapy, and tantric Buddhism, a specific form of Buddhism near and dear to my heart. Tantra is all about the transformation of desire. So as you can imagine, in this episode, we got deep down and juicy about how to take our desires, erotic and otherwise, and transform them into a desire for the divine so that we might see the divine in everyone and everything under the sun. Enjoy. All right. So we met at our dear friend Ali Hoffman's Shabbat sessions, and you are the resident photographer of that special evening. We are both going to be attending another Shabbat uh, this evening, which will be fun. And I remember us bonding for the first time over our mutual interest in Tantra or Tantra. I'm actually not sure how to pronounce that word. But yeah, Tantra Buddhism. I'm curious like what your whole relationship to that is. I know obviously we've talked about it interpersonally, but I would love for you to share that with the audience. And actually, before you dive in, just tell everyone who you are, what you do, what you're about, anything you want to share. Yeah, that's, I was imagining just taking the invitation to tell like a very long story about my relationship to to Tantra that would just kind of like encapsulate the whole story. But yeah, my name is Sun, Sun Karayama. I am right now uh, primarily a massage therapist, but I also do photography. I, um, you know, build websites and do Mm -hmm. digital marketing and branding and um, occasionally teach meditation and, you know, all the, all the Brooklyn things, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I, um, let's see, you know, when I think about like my relationship, like to Tantra, it feels like to me, like a landing place after like a very long journey of about my relationship to like just Buddhism and life in general. And Tantra actually, you know, my kind of introduction to Tantra was through a book entitled Introduction to Tantra by Lama Yesha, who is a high order Tibetan Buddhist monk. And, you know, in that book, they talk about how Tantra as a practice was not actually given to the public. Like this was mm-hmm. not like a thing that was available to anybody. It was, it was held secret for a long time because it required a certain amount of advancement in your understanding of Buddhism in general before you could build on top of that your relationship with Tantra as a practice. So I think like actually the way that and the timing in which that book and that this practice has kind of like arrived in my life is kind of at at the right time for me as far Mm -hmm. as my relationship to the fundamentals and basics of Buddhism. So that story I can just like take as an opportunity to just tell my long, my long version of my story. Yeah, I I would. I would be curious to know more about like how long you've been practicing Buddhism in general. You know, Buddhism entered into my life, I would say as of 2020. So I haven't been practicing aspects of it for a very long time. I'm curious to learn about your journey uh, with that wisdom tradition. Yeah. So I think, you know, the question honestly goes back to like my earliest memories of being a human being. Like Mm. I remember being like three or four years old and like being very confused about inhabiting a body. I remember like, 
looking at my hands and being very blown away by the fact that there was stuff happening underneath my skin and inside my body that I had no control over, no idea how it was working, why it was working. Like it blew my mind that I had this relationship to this thing that was living, but yet was me, yet was not me. Mm -hmm. And I think that started leading me down kind of like the large questions in life like what who are we what what is existence about like what does it mean to be part of the universe like I think my dad like wasn't I wasn't raised with any religion or Mm. much you know spirituality or anything at all but my dad used to grow up or he grew up like going to Buddhist church like as part of more of a cultural like event like we still went to the Buddhist church like festival every summer as part of like okay. our family reunion. But like, you know, I that's the extent of my relationship to Buddhism at that point was like eating sushi in the summer. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But he would like kind of plant, I think, koans. Mm, like, really? As we that's, were kids. Yeah. Can you explain yeah, what a koan was, is? Because like, I, like if I was a young kid told or being given these seeds i i like can't imagine what that would do to me so (laughs) yeah yeah so koans uh and again my understanding uh are uh tools used primarily in the zen buddhist tradition that get you to their enigmas that are like unanswerable questions they get you to think outside of your perception and understanding of like your relationship to the universe so mm-hmm. you know the most popular one is what is the sound of one hand clapping mm-hmm. uh, or if like a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it doesn't make a sound mm-hmm. um, i didn't realize that was a koan by the way <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, these are like things that like Buddhist monks would say, like, take this, go to a, you know, a cave and think about it. Yeah. Um, And, you know, my dad would ask me things. He's like, oh, what what's out beyond the edge of the universe? Mm. And like, oh, what's out past that? What's out past that? what's out past that you know what happened what happened what happened before the beginning of time what about Mm. before that what about before that or you know um and like (laughs) yeah i i think like that kind of like wait what was before the beginning uh you know like those types of like considering infinity as like a a three-year-old or four-year-old yeah for the rest of my life kind of like lent me into the sciences and Mm. so I ended up studying biology for my undergrad. I think like figuring out this human thing was always like very interesting to me. It's like, how can we live in this thing and not know like what's going on? And then, you know, you, you learn that biology is like a complicated set of chemistry. And then you study chemistry and you learn that chemistry is like a complicated set of physics. And then Mm. you get deep into physics and then you're like, wait, we don't... (laughs) really know what's going on you know we've got some good ideas but do you remember what specific thing you encountered in physics that made you realize that like we don't actually know what's going on was it a specific study or or like research thing or something like that yeah i mean like quantum mechanics like yeah. quantum tunneling for mm. instance. like the way that electrons jump between energy mm. levels is quantized so they exist at zero energy levels and will jump to one energy level and will not exist in between. Like Mm. they they cease to exist and then reappear in existence Mm. between energy levels. And that's how we have light emitting from everything. (laughs) You know, that's how the the universe works. And 
even like on the uncertainty principle that like yeah. the particles travel in fields of possibility simultaneously moving through two slits at once mm -hmm. uh, and then their probability of existence like collapses when when it interacts with an object like that's crazy yeah <laughs> if you think about like you know our, our newtonian mechanical observe observations like you think about the reality of that being built on like no no, no like you're just a field of probability yeah um, like that's that's crazy like I, I was just watching a lecture I think it was done at Cambridge. There's like a famous lecture hall where like, you know, Faraday did his first mm -hmm. talks and all that sort of thing. And this physicist was talking about the history of like of particles and how how we're taught that like when we grow up, like atoms are like the building blocks of the universe. And yeah. So we're like, okay. I remember atoms. learning that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we get it. Okay, cool. Like here's an atom. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you break down those atoms and there's a nucleus, which has protons and electrons. And then you have uh, or protons and, and neutrons, and you have electrons floating around. And like, okay, cool. Like, that's the building block of the universe. And then you get further on, they're like, well, right. So those those electrons and those protons, those those are actually comprised of quarks. And there's quarks mm. that have upspin and downspin. And like, those are the fundamental particles of the universe. And then they're like, right, well, those quarks, it turns out, like, they're actually perturbations in a field. Mm. Like, uh, they're like, actually... Is that like similar to vibrations? Like, what do you mean by perturbations? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like when we measure like particles, like we're measuring literally like a wave yeah. in like an energetic wave in a field, like in there's several different fields. Yeah. Um, like the electromagnetic field. But the thing is, is there is only one field. Mm. It's not like every particle has its own field. It's literally, you know, Buddhists have been talking about this for a long time that we are like, a wave on the ocean like yeah. literally the field is the ocean and like particles are just these like energy signatures that are like manipulating around so yeah like, when we're taught as kids that like the fundamental building blocks of the universe is atoms it's like no no, no. like actually the universe is an ocean and we're mm. just like everything on it is just like a a, a blip on on the surface yeah and, like so we are literally one with the universe like it's mm. not <laughs> not it's it's a very physical trait of the universe right so there's all that you know so I'm, yeah. I'm like so along my life story i'm like starting to peel back like my perceptions of reality and this is a very like zen kind of practice in general of like trying to figure out reality and, and break our like illusions yeah yeah like you can go through your entire life and never actually question what's underneath your skin and for you can sure operate, like, as a human totally fine for um, sure yeah but anyway, so, you know, I was kind of like exploring physics and theoretical physics and came across some Alan Watts. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Watts. Of course. Yeah. I actually just, I, mean, I just brought a Gaia subscription. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know that platform and Instagram knows me so well. They were like advertising this to me because they know I like sometimes to listen to Alan Watts. And apparently they have like a, a the biggest collection of Alan Watts from like back in the day that you can't find on YouTube where he was like younger and just starting out. So, yeah, I, I dabble. Cool. I dabble in Alan Watts from time to time. Yeah. So I think he's a very interesting good landing spot for a lot of people that are starting to peel back the curtain and he has a lecture series that's based on a book he wrote mm. um called out of your mind and i came across out of your mind and i i'm, I'm kind of like 
you know, I hate the fact that like Alan Watts audio clips are just like laid over every like house rave track. <laughs> and it's like, yes. Spirituality 101 on the dance floor. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. There's definitely and, more intentional. I just, I, I want to talk about that for a quick second because sure. I was just in Spain and there was a moment, I was basically going to a lot of raves every night. And there was a moment where one of the DJs started playing a song that had Alan Watts overlaid on it but it was done very tastefully and it was also like the one one of the few times all the times that i had heard music that entire weekend that reflected some even bare interest in spirituality (laughs) so so like i I do think it can be done tastefully but it can also be done in a very trite way like you're like you're saying right now i mean i'm joking yeah because like i i kind of love it yeah like like thank you can we all just realize that what's going on is just fucking crazy or yeah i i think you know i i'm just like i guess maybe reflecting my own like insecurity around like alan watts told me that the universe is different um, yeah. <laughs> which is like you know apparently common mm-hmm. um, but, but point, point being um that you know, he the, he he was somebody who was very studied in the Zen tradition. And Zen, in my understanding of the framework, is much more interested in this the seeking the enlightenment experience in in cracking the the codes and in expansion of knowledge and understanding. And it's and it's a very cerebral practice mm. and approach to getting to the kind of enlightenment experience, which is why I think it, it like resonates with a lot of people from the sciences and resonates yeah. kind of with Western thought um, in general being kind of a more kind of like, I don't know, maybe anyway, left, left brain approach. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. at the time when I was, when I was listening to out of your minds, that his whole lecture series, I was actually, I was working on a PhD in medicinal chemistry at University of Washington in Seattle. And I was like seeing my life unfold in front of my eyes going into mm. like pharmacy. Like I was getting set up like at Pfizer in oh, San Diego wow. and like watching like big farm become my like life. And I was like, wait, there's something like wrong here. I- yeah not like what I want to be doing with my time. So I ended up like following my passion for craft beer and I like quit my PhD and I started brewing beer professionally. Which is a chemical, which is a chemical thing, right? It's Oh still... my God. I, 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 you know, it's, it's, people are like, oh, that's like, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like chemistry into <laughs> like brewing beer, it's the same. But I'm like, you don't actually even really know how similar it was. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. Like the, the skill sets, like tactically of being in a lab and cell culturing E. coli to purify enzymes and protein is like literally the exact same physical skill set that you need to like cell culture yeast to purify mm. beer, like uh, like very translatable um, skill set. So that was, yeah. cool. but the interesting thing about brewing beer professionally is that it's very physical and it's very repetitive. So mm. I would start my day every day with like 2,500 pounds of grain on a pallet. And I would like open each bag one by one, 55 pounds and just like throw them over my shoulder into a mill. And so like I would get into these repetitive motions where my body would start to go on autopilot and I could like slip into like flow state. And I would like have to like palletize like 60 kegs and like fork them into a cold room. And like, and over the years of doing that, I would just doing the same things in and out every day. Like I started to be able to use that time to start meditating where I was Mm -hmm. like, brewing beer became my yoga like 
this whole monks brewing beer thing is like that's real <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah it's a, it makes a lot of sense and so i was like listening to alan watts expanding my consciousness trying to soak up the reality of the universe of us being one on this wave and yeah xyz and you know there was a point where i was meditating like five hours a day and um there was one night where i like was home and i was i was just like going to sleep and i was meditating on time i was thinking about like oh like if all the stuff that like i consider to be me right yeah. now like has literally always existed for 13 billion years and like will continue to exist for 13 billion years like the time that it's organized in this identity is actually like totally insignificant yeah um, and i think there's times when you can speak to your subconscious and it like you can't lie to yourself in a lot mm. of ways you can't be like i see that cloth and it's red and yeah <laughs> yeah but then there's times when you, your subconscious knows the truth and mm -hmm. like i had been meditating on this stuff long enough that like my body accepted the truth that my life was insignificant mm -hmm. and that like i was oh, interesting dead that like in the time in this time scale of the universe that like i'm dead tomorrow yeah know? and what happened was i think biologically what happens when people get into these near-death experiences like if you are in a car accident and then you see liters of blood flowing out of you you'll tell your body like oh i'm dying and mm -hmm. your body will believe you and mm -hmm. when that happens and your body knows that you're dying i think it just dumps like serotonin dmc yeah, yeah, yeah. dopamine like the whole thing yeah and, like that happened to me so i'm like sitting there and i'm like oh i'm like I'm, i need to consolidate my my death now and yeah. like my body like realized truthfully that i was dying and dead and i had this like extreme psychedelic experience like i was fully every fiber of my being was just like vibrating with extreme euphoria yeah. and like huge like brain dump and it's interesting your body it sounds like your body never went into fight or flight no no it's because it was like there's nothing you can do against the face of 13 billion years like <laughs> yeah i also think it's probably like the fact that you were meditating five hours a day was instrumental to your body not going into fight or flight or not just 100%. not even taking that serious that concept seriously you know a hundred percent yeah and, you know, when in that experience, I had this true, like, feeling of expansion and of leaving my body, of, like, mm. of really becoming one with the universe. Like, mm. I was like, well, if this identity is dead, but I, like, yeah, I still exist. And, like, I am one with, I, I'm as much that table as I am my fingernail, as yeah. I am my eyeball. Yeah, um, it's, like, co-created. Well, human beings are co-created with the rest of reality on some level we're, we're we're a like if the universe is a sheet of fabric we're a wrinkle on mm, it. like we're mm. still the fabric yeah yeah um and i was like oh i'm not a wrinkle i'm the i'm the sheet oh and, i see and i fell asleep <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then yeah. the next day and i was like wait a minute what do i do what do i do now yeah like do i get in my car and burn fossil fuel to go produce beer for people today <laughs> is that how i spend my day 
and it like fucked me up. Or, yeah. Excuse me, I don't know if you. If no, we... all good. Okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like you know, I had to really consolidate. I, I I felt like I needed to make a choice. I felt mm. like I needed to either one continue like living as the human being, the identity that I had built for myself. Right? Yeah. And like, just forget that this all happened or two, I needed to like seriously act on this new information that I have that like, I'm one with the universe and like actually live accordingly. Mm. And when I thought about doing that, I didn't have any clue where to begin. I was like, so like, what would you do? Do I get a tent and (laughs) go into the woods and like fish or become one with nature or like I, I didn't I didn't know how I wasn't equipped to like yeah. deal with it. And and unfortunately I also didn't have like community around me to help me like metabolize that information. I was mm. like doing all of this just alone in a warehouse and So like, you didn't have I, any any colleagues or friends that you could talk to about this I was, stuff? I was like, you know, drinking every weekend <laughs> with my college buddies. Yeah. This was when I was like twenty five and like I didn't have a Buddhist community or mm. people that were doing this this type of thinking. Like I you know. So I I guess my only option at that point that I felt like I could take was to just like forget that all happened and just go back to being me for a while. Oh wow. So I I kind of like went entered a stage of nihilism for a while. And I and I think that this is a trap that Alan Watts himself kind of fell into. Like mm. he was not a happy human being from my understanding. Like, and I think that the trap is that like nihilism can creep in from the understanding that like really nothing matters. Which is don't want it to. Which is interesting because <laughs> I follow this um amazing cognitive scientist named John Verveke. Most of the viewers know this because I always quote him, but he is the person who basically introduced me to like Zen Buddhism and Zen forms of meditation. And he, he always contrasted actually a very specifically Japanese form of Zen Buddhism. Nishitada, I think is the name of the, the last name of the guy who came up with this, I guess, formulation, which is basically, it's going to sound incoherent. It's a con, but it's the no thingness beyond God. And he contrasted this idea, which I cannot do justice in actually explaining, but if, if when I read about it, it made sense. Verveke contrasted this with Nietzsche's sort of despair and falling into nihilism. Mm. And Verveke says that, you know, when Nietzsche looked into the abyss, he, he became or he saw sort of nihilistic or nihilism. But the problem is that he didn't stare long and hard enough into the abyss, because if he would have stared hard enough into the abyss, he would have seen the abyss staring back at him. He would have been able to see that sort of similar thing that you're saying, the sort of oneness with the abyss itself. And I would highly recommend for those interested in diving deeper, this book, The Nothingness Beyond God, which, which explains this in great detail. It serves as an alternative or even like a remedy for nihilism. So it's ironic that Alan Watts' foray into Zen meditation and Zen Buddhism actually landed him in nihilism because there are elements of it that could actually be a salve against nihilism. I also want to talk to you later about everything everywhere all at once and sort of Oh, that yeah. film's entire like teaching, but continue. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, I like that. I'd love to cut up and, and do some more reading because I, I dig that framework. No thingness other outside of God. Like that's my framework too, is that like that all that is, like that's that's how you define God is, yeah. is all all that is. Yeah. That was this like experience of like, okay, zoom out, expand, one with the universe, got it, check, can't deal with that. 
going back to being human. So I like, I, I went back, I like kind of drank myself into oblivion for several years. Like mm. I was already in the alcohol industry and I was like, whatever, like yeah. everything's perfect. <laughs> like the universe is unfolding just as it should. Yeah. And it wasn't until I found Tibetan Buddhism that like it really helped like pull me out of that funk. Um, mm. Tibetan Buddhism was myself for nihilism, which was that, you know, here are these people that have like been dealing with this problem for many, many, mm. many, many years. And the conclusion that they come to is compassion. Mm. And um, I think that Tibetan Buddhism is less interested in, in cracking you open as it is like concerned with if you do crack yourself open, how do you come back from that and mm -hmm. be a good human? Or if you never do crack yourself open, how do you be a good human? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah and, either way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think like the heart centric approach of like, oh, okay, if you're one with everything, then like love yourself. Yeah. And that that approach really helped me forgive myself for not living perfectly as God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like like <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, like you're also like human and like you can try to be good and yeah. try to like bring light into the universe and love and and also like you're you were born into middle class America and like do that. Yeah. You know? I found a, a teacher in here in Brooklyn, his name is Punsak Thupten. He's mm. um just a joy of a man. He's mm. he's a tiny Haitian born dude who like i think he moved to america when he was like 11 and then like lived in a monastery for 20 years and like <laughs> yeah and then he decided to like leave the monastery to come teach meditation to the world and mm -hmm. he's just like his just heart is so full of joy um he teaches meditation i know he's got like a patreon in a, in a wednesday night meditation in bushwick that okay. if people are interested it's called yeah. home and his his name is punsak p-h-u N T S O K. That should be. We will. We will link to all the resources in the, in the YouTube. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that period of time like helped me reorganize my kind of like my worldview, and then mm. also, I mean, we can leave on a whole other tangent, but also started my path down plant medicine work, mm. um, and really digging up dealing with my human condition um mm. how long are you with this meditation practice or are you still with this meditation practice yeah i think this was like 2016 i think when i when i first met punsak and when things really started like changing around in my life meditation practice for me is doesn't really fit many molds like my mm. own personal practice like is not like easy to just like explain to people mm. I don't sit daily on a cushion. I do <laughs> sit on a cushion occasionally. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but, you know, my practice is like, a, is, is a personal thing that I've kind of just like developed over the years. Sure. Um, but I think that Buddhism, funnily enough to me, like, it's I, I don't see it as a religion or as like um you know even necessarily a practice or mm. the spirituality like i actually think about buddhism more as like biohacking <laughs> funnily mm. enough like yeah it's it's kind of like a system of describing our relationship the human relationship to the universe you know like the yeah. four noble truths are that like life is suffering and that's yeah. like that's not asking you to believe in in God or sure. anything. It's just like, hey, if you're a human, like we relativity exists and we're gonna live somewhere on the scale of of pain and pleasure. And yeah. like that's part of the human condition. 
Yeah. So like, to me, that's like an interesting framework that like doesn't require you to like subscribe to anything or believe in anything. And there's a lot of tools within, you know, the unfolding different sects of Buddhism. And I, I incorporate a lot of those tools, which was how I ended up finding where we arrive now, which is Tantra. Mm-hmm. So Tantra arrived in a, in a place where like, you know, when, when Lamiyasha in his introduction starts talking about Tantra, like he basically says, in order to begin practice with Tantra, you need to have personal experience and understanding of enlightenment. Like you need to have some sort of taste or flavor or, you know, basic understanding of what this thing is. And um, most people don't have that. Yeah. Um, And so like, I think Tantra becoming like popularized and like available in the West and just out there is like fine, but like in this Buddhist tradition, like it's actually built on this understanding. And so like Tantra came to me in this place where we're like, oh, right. Yeah. I, I know this thing. Like I'm mm-hmm. one with the universe. Right. Yeah. Like, and I know that that comes with a certain set of qualities. Like mm-hmm. when you experience that, you tend to associate that experience with like blissfulness, mm-hmm. peace and, and happiness and X, Y, Z, like oneness. Yeah. And so Tantra then uh, is a practice of using the human experience on the spectrum of pleasure and pain to use the experience of pleasure as the anchor for your meditation mm. of oneness. Mm. So what is Tantra's relationship to pain, if any? In a lot of ways, it's, it's the same. Like, I think that Buddhists that have been studying this stuff for a long time realized that from your center, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what direction you go, you're going to arrive at the truth. Like, okay. it, because the truth is there, right? Okay, yeah. And famously, Siddhartha Buddha like, was like, I'm going to go try the ascetic route where yeah. like, I'm going to not eat mm. for as long as I can and deny myself all worldly pleasures and deny myself food, women, sight, sound, X, Y, Z, I'm going to go sit on a retreat. Yeah. And, you know, famously, like, there's, like, Catholic monks that would whip themselves, like, to, like, because they realized that, like, pleasure was a trap. Mm. Like, if you get, if you get lost in pleasure, like, Mm -hmm. you're not ascending your energy towards God. You're just, like, consuming sex, drugs, food, X, Y, Z. Yeah. So in order to avoid the traps of worldly pleasures, people would engage with pain and, and suffering. He talks about specifically the Christians whipping themselves. And I would like to see what he says. But yeah, continue. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, it turns out that the Buddha, after all this time of denying himself food and women and pleasure, he's like dying of starvation under a tree. (laughs) And like (laughs) some woman brings him a bowl of rice. Yeah. And he eats from this bowl of rice. And that becomes the beginning of his of his true enlightenment oh so why that why that moment itself yeah so you know if you look at like images of buddha you see this like fat belly (laughs) right yeah but like he didn't get there by just like indulging in in the pleasures of the universe he he had to go the other way first i see and the connection to eating rice and to enjoying the pleasure of the universe like he was already so deep in his in his spiritual practice that like he realized that like oh all of what we were thinking of this yeah. like pleasure being a trap of like indulging in worldly desires is that like pleasure is yeah has hooks in it if you give in to your desire 
And you mm-hmm. feel like displace yourself of like wanting and getting into craving. Mm-hmm. But pleasure in itself, if without those desires, without those cravings, if you mm-hmm. just sit with pleasure, mm-hmm. um, that it's in itself, there's nothing wrong there. It's your own human condition that creates the traps. I see. And so he was able to take his experience with pleasure and use that as the anchor for his meditation. And it became easier to do because pleasure has the same polarity as the experience of enlightenment, which is bliss, Mm. happiness, euphoria, oneness with the universe. And so when you're trying to turn pain into your meditation on bliss and oneness, it's like opposite polarity. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you won't get there. It's just more challenging. And so that became the basis for Tantra was like pleasure has this polarity with oneness. And so if you can engage with pleasure without getting lost in the traps, which is the hardest thing to do. Yeah is not given to the hooks in, of, of pleasure, then that can be a, the most powerful tool we have to going towards enlightenment. And so that's why Tantra leans into the most challenging forms of pleasure, which is mm-hmm. sexuality. Yeah. We're hardwired into sexuality to be craving and leaning in further and deeper. But if you can master your cravings and desires Mm-hmm. and separate yourself from that and engage in the pleasure and use that as your meditation, mm-hmm. then that can be the most powerful form. Now you can, you can do this with any sorts of pleasure, yeah. but you know, the, the question became like, well, what's the most pleasurable thing we can do that has the most hook? And it's like, well, if you're on the edge of orgasm, like yeah. you want to have that orgasm, that's probably one of the most primal hardwired yeah. desires there is. And so if you can unhook yourself from your desire Mm. and just sit present in the pleasure experience without wanting, Mm. then that can be the most powerful tool that you have to connecting to the same polarity of like the peak levels of pleasure. That's what oneness, that's what enlightenment is, is peak levels of pleasure. It's, It's blissful oneness with the universe. So that's why you end up with all of these like tantric sexual practices that are that are around semen retention and like X, Y, Z. So I do wonder though, if it's easier to do the tantric practice, if, because Siddhartha did, it seems like he first used pain, right? And then he was able to go into pleasure. But are there any like known or famous monks or Buddhists who were able to just do, just reach enlightenment via pleasure alone without going into that, you know, whipping or whatever, that increase of pain deliberately. Yeah. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, that's not, it's, that's an impossible (laughs) preposition because it's part of the same spectrum. Okay. Like pleasure and pain is part of the same spectrum and Mm -hmm. it's relativistic. I see. And the fact that the first noble truth of Buddhism, the first thing they tell you is that life is suffering. Like you, you can't live a human life and avoid. You can't escape that anyway. Okay. We all, we all have, because whatever experience you're having, it's going to be on that spectrum. So our understanding of pleasure is in fact an experience of the absence of pain in some sense. So it is Mm. dependent upon your experience of suffering. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. I found one of the passages, although it's not, it's more about Tantra than it is about Christians, but um, it says one of the central themes of the Kama Sutra, as well as more extreme, but related Tantric texts 
is the intensification of desire and the deferment of its satisfaction, so that one might think of these as manuals for the transformation of desire into longing. Now, I can see how like longing itself can be a part of that pain principle, actually, that you reach that you reach transcendence through. But I'm curious as to what you might think about that. Until the word longing. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, so this is Lama Yesha's um, introduction to Tantra, and the subtitle is The Transformation of Desire. Mm-hmm. So like the whole practice of Tantra, like, as I understand it, is built on this framework of this working with the suffering and desire and, and transforming that into your meditation. Now, longing is an interesting word that they use there. So transformation of desire into longing, because it actually like the, the way the word, the place where the word longing shows up the most is actually from, in my mind, uh, Sufism. Have you ever mm, studied Sufism? No, but I want to. Yeah, so Sufism is like a mystical sub-branch of uh, Islam. And uh, like the most famous Sufi is Rumi. So Mm -hmm. you've probably heard of all these like Rumi poets, poet poems that, you know, probably at some point have also found their way into some deep house track. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the underlying principle of Sufism is that the experience of being born into humanity is like a reed growing from a river. Mm. And when you become born into being a human, it's like you're cut from, from mm. the reed is being cut from the river and you're being separated from your oneness. Mm. And so like the human condition is actually like at its root, it's this longing to return, mm. right, to return back into oneness. And so there's like this whole romantic kind of all this romance of like longing for love and yeah. oneness and, and it's and it is a deep spiritual path. But it's interesting that like that word showed up in my mind in this passage as as the spiritual path is that your trans desire, sexual desire, let's say, is transformed into longing as in spiritual longing. Is that yeah. what that so so that I would say like desire for like let's say I have desire for a man. Desire for a man is transformed into the desire for desire itself. Hmm. Yeah. So so desire, so in in my like framework, like desire. So the first noble truth is life is suffering. <laughs> the, second noble truth, the second noble truth is your suffering is caused by your desire. Yeah. So I don't know though. It's like it's like you could be playing a semantic game here also, you know. Yeah. Uh, which is the downfall of all mystical spirit <laughs> yeah but um, but that's actually reflected in to sort of take a turn into another tradition i would say that like certain statutes in the catholic church in rome in particular that display sort of all-encompassing love that let's say a saint has for god which also simultaneously makes like the saint who's depicted looks like they're orgasming like they're having an orgasm yeah. In the actual uh, statute or depiction, I think like that is sort of what is being alluded to, like desire for another human being is transformed into desire for oneness with all with all things, essentially. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like Tantra to me. Like yeah. that sounds like all of these like holy women draped in their yeah. like, <laughs> nun cloths while they're like giving their O face in Marvel yeah. Da Vinci, you know, is Bernini, like, Bernini. Bernini. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Underrated. 
like that is, you know, part of this definitely kind of like tantric path is the realization that like that oneness with God, the closest kind of experience that we have is this like connected into this hardwired experience that we have, which is like orgasmic. But the the problem with sex and orgasm is that we love sex. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the hooks come in. Exactly. Yeah. So it's transform. It's alchemizing. It's transforming those hooks into your meditation. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's a really beautiful formulation. Switching gears for a little bit. I would love to know your take on, given that we've been talking about Tantra and Buddhism and Zen and all these things, tell me about your experience of everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh my God. (laughs) I loved this movie. I love how there's such deep mystical understanding that's baked into the foundational layer of this cake. And then there's just like fistfuls of (laughs) funfetti smashed on top, you know? Yeah. the butt plug jokes yeah uh, like um and you know the the nihilism cooked into the everything bagel yeah uh, i in just the visual feast that it was uh so i don't know the the directors the daniels did this music video beforehand do you know about this? oh no i haven't seen this yeah look this up i think it's i think it was that song like turned down for what okay it's something obnoxious and absurd and you have to watch this music video. It's yeah. like, um, it's an amazing feast for the eyes. Like, okay. That's like absurd in a lot of, you know, like how absurd it is, like the hot dog finger yeah. situation. And like, yet also built on truth yeah. that like, you know, you can listen to very serious high level theoretical physicists who talk about the multiverse Mm -hmm. and about how like if there's a possibility then it does exist like Mm -hmm. every there are infinite realities that have to exist because of this equation which has to do with the with uncertainty and it has to do with schrodinger's uncertainty principle so like if you look at these equations seriously and you and you interpret them as they are like written Mm -hmm. and that means that necessarily every possible outcome does isn't is a universe that exists Mm -hmm. um and then, you know, break that down into like an eight bit map of like, there's the hot dog finger. Yeah. <laughs> get there, you've got a paper cut your finger, you know? Yeah. And there's a Hollywood universe and there's the, or I guess in the Hollywood universe, the main character or the mom was like a, what was she, a martial artist or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You pinky kung fu. Yeah, yeah, kung fu. And of course, I don't know if you've seen Kung Fu Hustle. Oh, yeah. So, like, they're paying ode to that entire, like, genre. (laughs) Also one of the best movies I've ever seen, Kung Fu Hustle. Um, Yeah. So I watched everything, everywhere, all at once on my birthday Mm -hmm. in July. And it was such an interesting experience because I was supposed to go out on my birthday. Then my friend's flight was canceled and I had no other plans. So I ended up staying in and watching this movie. And I, this was the film. I feel like everyone wants to do a film about the multiverse these days, right? Sure. But like, this was the film that I was waiting for someone to do about the multiverse because I always conceptualize the multiverse as, you know, what if the multiverse was everything that we say it is? And also the, the best verse to be in is the one where you essentially achieve a higher state of consciousness. 
And I feel like that was the arc of the film. And the, the most brilliant part to me, and I guess this is a bit of a spoiler alert for those who may not have seen it, but the most profound best part to me was when the mother realized that she had to allow her daughter to make her own decision. Like mm-hmm. at the very end, like mm-hmm. that, like that whole letting go mm-hmm. um, was so brilliant. I do wonder though, that if I hadn't known all the things I know now about Buddhism and about Zen practice, if I would have been able to even comprehend this film <laughs> or if I would have been confused about it, like, I don't know, but it seems to be popular and it seems to be getting a lot of rave re- reviews. So begs the question. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the kind of brilliant part about it is that like, no matter how much depth and understanding of like the universe and enlightenment and Buddhism and everything that you do, your teenage daughter will still fuck you up. Yeah. Like I love like how, yeah, it traverses those, those like layers of humanity and, yeah. you know, yeah, I was just like bawling. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like so like human and so real. And yeah. like, I, I relate to that. Like this girl, like real, she gets her mind blown yeah. about the universe. And, and she gets really into, depressed. Yeah. Slips into nihilism. Yeah. Like it's literally what she, that's she literally what happens. Universes. And then like, is like, turns into a terror. And like, yeah. literally that's what happens. Like, that's what happened to me. Like I mm. drank like a fish for like seven more years Yeah, because it was like, well, whatever. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to dress like Elvis and like turn my head backwards and like, <laughs> blow everybody up into glitter. Cause yeah. Like, yeah. Everything. It's interesting. So my roommate and I were talking about this um, and this maps on to what we're talking about now, the difference between emo music and the blues as it relates to understanding, I guess the first of the four noble truths as a portal into compassion. Mm. So my roommate argued that emo music is sort of a realization, a representation of the realization that yes, life is suffering, but then you're like raging against it, right? Mm -hmm. You're angry, you're bitter, you're raging against it, all these things. Whereas the blues, you drop sort of one level deeper into the suffering and you Mm -hmm. sit with the suffering and it opens up this portal of compassion for the rest of humanity or the rest of the world. Because now you're having this universally human experience that everyone else also experiences. And so I feel like there's this interesting musical orientation or difference in musical orientation that the mother went through or came to um, in contrast to the daughter. And obviously the daughter at some point sort of like, I think saw a glimpse of what the mother saw, but as a musical comparison, it's interesting to think about those two genres as sort of like, that's the emotional resonance that each of these two genres of music are uh, trafficking in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of why like, I'm so into Buddhism is that it's like not like these are these are human conditions. So yeah. Not it's talking about universally true things like yeah. experience. Like the, the process of becoming human is traumatic. Like you come into the world as like, you know, wide-eyed baby that like everything is magical and beautiful and you're held in arms of love ideally. Yeah. And then like anything is possible and then just boundaries start sliding on it. <laughs> it's like, actually, no, like, no, the, you gotta, yeah. gotta be an animal and gotta survive. And it's hard out there and everything's not perfect. And yeah. Inherently, that's like a traumatic experience. Like, it's yeah. not 
people to to come into the world without your boundaries getting slammed in your face. And that process leads us to a place where we <laughs> have the ability to like transcend it. Mm. You have to go through it in order to transcend it. In every different step along the way, you're going to have different experiences. And like that's, you know, in that expression in art is like emo and blues. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, you know, pop probably somewhere in there. Somewhere, somewhere in there. Somewhere yeah. along the way. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the delusional, like entitled baby syndrome is like everything. Along the adolescence. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too, though. That's a part of the whole ride, you know? Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. Just don't stay there. (laughs) Yeah. Don't stay there forever. Awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Do you have anything, any last thoughts or words you'd like to share with the audience? What are your, do you want to say what your uh, Insta handles, that sort of thing? Where where can we find you on social? Sure. My Instagram handle is Kata Nose. That's K-A-T-A-K-N-O-W-S. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is for now. Kata knows. That's the place I am. I'm like sad that it's no longer photography, but like, whatever. I mean, last last I checked, it was a lot of photography, but... Instagram? Oh, you're saying the whole platform. I was talking about your account. Oh, (laughs) no. Yeah. I mean, like, I just don't know when there was a still image in my feed last. Oh, I see. And like, the photography community is really bummed about the direction that Instagram is going. Yeah. Like, make Instagram photos again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. TikTok. But yeah, that's a a whole nother thing. Yeah, it feels like we're sliding down the vibrational channels. Back into the world. Back into the muck. Back into the muck. You know, that's the last thing I will leave with is that. One of my favorite stocking stuffer gifts I've ever gotten is this pocket Pima Children book. Mm. I don't know if you know Pima, but... Um, yeah, of course. My heart. The first time I opened this little stocking stuffer, it was on this essay about the journey goes down, not up. Mm. How that a lot of times we think about spiritual awakening as like climbing a mountain where... Uh, you kind of end up on this top kind of peak experience, but you're actually descending into the seven layers of hell. Yeah. The true, the true <laughs> framework we should think about in this kind of like bodhicitta bodhisattva spirit is actually like descending in an inverse mountain, like descending into the muck of the earth mm. and, and really being down there in the water, in the pain and in the insecurity and in the fears and the humanity. And, um, being here, you know, Hmm. trying to escape and and enlighten. So love that. Thank you, son. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, this is so great. Good to see you. You're awesome. Good to see you too.